0: Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever
1: pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No,
0: I am your father.
1: You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After
0: the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how you doing today? Well, Mike, for as long as I can remember, people have hated me. They looked at my face <laughs> and my body, and they ran away in horror. In my loneliness, I decided that if I could not inspire love, which is my deepest hope, I would instead cause fear. I live because this poor, half-crazy genius has given me life. But apart from that, I'm fine.
1: <laughs> well, you know, Phil, it's funny because it sounds like you're quoting a movie there. But since I know you so well, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're just talking off the cuff. I mean, that all seems to yeah, fit you pretty yeah. well.
0: No, that's just <laughs> I just, uh, just how I feel today.
1: Right. <laughs> uh, well, for anybody who might not know what movies we're doing today, why don't you go ahead and fill them in so they know exactly what you're quoting from?
0: Well, this week, yeah, we're finally doing Flubber. We mentioned it to the other week. <laughs> 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 no, this, this week... We are going after the ending of 1994's Time Cup, and the 1974 comedy classic Young Frankenstein.
1: Should be a fun one. Also, two movies I enjoy greatly, actually.
0: Yeah, I do enjoy both of them. I'm um, also doing uh, the our top ten favourite films of 1935. Going way, yes, way which... back. which...
1: Which, as we we learned just a few minutes before recording, uh, Phil completely kicks my ass in terms of movies that we've seen because yeah. I've seen very few and he's seen very many from that year, which is kind of an anomaly. So mm. uh, it should be an interesting list.
0: Yes, well, it's just some lots of good films, and uh, but as always, we go that far back. Lots of good films, which. I'd either not heard of or sort of heard of, but I want to see now after yeah. reading about
1: that. Yeah, I found some cool ones that I definitely want to track down. So I'm actually excited, too. I, I know that um, some people like when we do the more modern movies, but I also do enjoy diving back into these kind of classic eras and, and learning about films I didn't know about or revisiting classics that I, I watched as a kid or even more recently. So
0: but, be, it'd, be, it'd be fun all around. Well, that's the joy of movies and films. It's just there's so many out there and there's so many brilliant ones and even the bad ones are often worth a watch. That's right. That's right.
1: All right. Well, why don't we jump into our endings then, Phil?
0: That's a great idea, Mike. Do you want to give us the rundown on what happens in Time Cop? Sure.
1: Well, Time Cop, a 1994 film directed by Peter Hyams, produced by Sam Raimi, which I think a lot of people may not know. Uh, it stars one Jean-Claude Van Damme, which marks this is our first Van Damme movie, which is kind of fun. Oh, yeah. Also stars the great, the late great Ron Silver, always a favorite of mine, uh, as well as Mia Sarah. So the story goes, in the future, time travel has been invented and is being used for criminal purposes. Max Walker, played by JCVD, is invited to join the Time Enforcement Commission, which tries to protect the time stream from illicit use. Then he is attacked at home by unknown assailants, and his wife is killed when they blow up his house. Ten years later, now a time cop, Max Walker gets a new partner named Sarah Fielding, and they investigate a senator named McComb. We learn that the older and younger Macombs have been colluding, and we also learn that the future past selves can't touch, as the same matter can't occupy the same space. Fielding turns on Max and reveals she's working for Macomb, but Max escapes. Back in 1994, Max interrogates Fielding, who is eventually killed by Macomb's men. He returns home and finds his past wife, tells her that he's from the future, but she's kidnapped by Senator McComb. Younger McComb shows up, and Walker pushes the two McCombs together, and they dissolve into nothingness. Walker leaves his wife, Melissa, next to his younger self, and then travels back to 2004, where he wakes up to find that the timeline has changed for the better. Fielding is alive and a good cop, McComb doesn't exist, and his wife, Melissa, is waiting at home for him with their nine-year-old son, who did not exist previously. And that is Time Cop.
0: Very well, very well done there because it's a time travel film and they can be. Yeah, it's never a, easy to yeah. explain a time travel film. You got to keep your t- tenses right. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> are you uh, are you a fan of Time Cop? There. Yeah,
0: right? I, I always uh, I always love Time Cop. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I like most fan down films, even though most of them are a bit rubbish. But uh, I, I thought uh, Time Cop, it was done pretty well. The effects, apart from those dreadful cars, right, which went to be futuristic and look dreadful, I always thought the effects were pretty good as well. Uh, and I just like the whole idea of it. I always like. I'm always a sucker for a time travel film as well.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, obviously, this is. A, I think it's a film I, I'm predisposed to like. But uh, you know, and, and Van Damme for me was always a little more hit or miss. I'm not. He's not like me like with Stallone or Schwarzenegger where I love all of his films. But this is definitely my favorite of his movies, and uh, I, I think it holds up regardless of whether you're a Van Damme fan or not. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just a good science fiction action film. It's it's a lot of fun.
0: Well, it was good. What's well, sort of good as well as the whole plot. It wasn't necessarily. He didn't necessarily have to have someone like Van Damme, you know, a kick-ass action, you know, martial arts expert, because it, it was a fairly decent story as well.
1: Right, and I think it's only a few times he really goes into the martial arts stuff. It was really, yeah, yeah. you know, more of a – it's got a real story to it. It's not just, hey, here's a vehicle so that he can kick people's butts for 90 minutes. It's yeah. like a, hey, this is a real movie with a real narrative and an actual story, and it happens to have a little bit of action in it.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: Cool. Well, why don't you go ahead and give us your day after, Phil?
0: Okay, well, uh, the day after, Max spends the time with his wife and son. He's uh, obviously gone through an awful lot and it's the first time he's met his son, even though he's nine years old. Uh, he's relaxed and everything seems to be safe and normal. While playing in the park, Max goes off to get them all an ice cream. As he waits in the queue, he feels a hand grab his shoulder. Immediately, he spins around and a fight ensues with an eyepatched stranger. Max realises the stranger isn't fighting to hurt him, just defending himself. So he stops. They both look at each other. The stranger thanks him and introduces himself. His name's Carl, and he is Max's son, all grown up. He's come from the future and needs his father's help. And that's my day after.
1: I like it very much. Now, I have to ask, did you name him Carl on purpose? Because <laughs> that's become a thing for you? Hey,
0: actually, I did this time because I realized yeah, there are certain right. people who get called Carl. So I thought, yeah, right, it's another Carl.
1: That's good, I like it. I mean, I like to kill people with buses. You like to name characters Carl. I think it's fun that we we each have our little... uh, I have
0: have no idea where Carl came from. I don't know
1: any Carls. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, it certainly is interesting. I can't wait to hear where we go
0: with that. Okay, so what have you got for your day after?
1: Okay, well, having not seen his wife in 10 years, Max makes love to her for 17 hours straight. Yeah. Most of it occurs in soft focus, slow motion, with a rocking power ballad soundtrack.
0: Jean-Claude Van Damme.
1: That's right. After the marathon session ends, Max realizes he doesn't know anything about his wife and son from the past 10 years and starts to worry that it will put a strain on their relationships, when all of a sudden, the entirety of the last decade's worth of memories rushes into his brain like a tidal wave. It turns out there was just a short temporal delay, but now he's fully present in the new timeline. With a fully renewed sense of purpose, he returns to work at the Time Enforcement Commission and continues to prevent time crimes. Then one day, everything changes. The world is completely different. The skies are polluted, technology has run rampant, and police officers are now called judges. Ooh. Nobody besides himself remembers that there was a different timeline. Max realizes that some criminal must have triggered a catastrophic change in the past that transformed the world, but he has no idea who it was or what they've done. He's trapped in a world that's no longer his own. And that's my day after.
0: Oh, I didn't expect it to go all Dread on us.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah, nice, a... nice. I thought that'd be kind of fun. I thought that seems like a, you know, interesting sort of future world type thing.
0: I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the megacity. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, bring us into your immediate aftermath. Okay. Max and Carl go back to the far future, and Max is shocked to see that the country is devastated. The Time Enforcement Commission, or Tech HQ, is in ruins apart from the one working time machine. Carl explains that the world has been devastated due to a new military initiative that happened a few years back. It went dreadfully wrong. They had cloned backs for the Universal Soldier Initiative. But after the clone army was finished, it turned out that it had been sabotaged and all the clones went crazy, killing and destroying everything they could. Carl had gone back in time to kill his father to stop this dreadful thing happening, but realised he couldn't when he finally met him. However, he did find out that the sabotage on the Universal Soldiers had been caused by a time traveller who would be setting off into the past in a few days from their current date. It was all very timey-wimey, but Carl explained it really well to his his dad. (laughs) Suddenly they were attacked by a squad of universal soldiers, and that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, I
1: like it. I like how we're tying together some good old JCVD Mm -hmm.
0: roles there. Yes. Very cool. Okay, so what happens with your immediate aftermath? Okay,
1: well... Max rushes home to find that his wife is no longer the Melissa that he knows. Instead, she seems nearly lobotomized. His son is at the police academy, which conscripts children to the judge program when they turn five. Max hits the history archive, trying to figure out where things went wrong. As he sifts through decades of data, it slowly dawns on him that there's one constant in everything that seems to have led to this new world. And that constant is him. When he stopped Senator McComb, he unwittingly set into motion a chain of events that slowly built up a massive tear in the space-time continuum. With his last TEC mission, he finally tipped the scales and it created a ripple effect that moved from 1994 forward, changing the world into the nightmare he finds himself trapped in. He realizes there's only one choice. He has to go back in time and stop himself. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Oh, this sounds like it's going to be, you know, a double (laughs) trouble thing going on. Could be. Could be. We'll see. (laughs) Excellent. All right. So uh, I want to hear how
1: this all winds up. So uh, bring us uh, home with your long term.
0: Okay. After many fights through the apocalyptic wasteland, Carl and Max make it through to the enemy base. They find it has another functioning time machine and they confront the mastermind. It turns out it is a cybernetically enhanced Jean-Claude Van Damme. (laughs) He catches Carl and Max in a clever trap and then goes into an extremely witty, clever, and verbose monologue about his evil plan and his reasons for doing so. I won't go into details on what it is, obviously, because, you know, (laughs) it's really evil. Right. Uh, Shocked by the terrible evil behind the plan, Max manages to release Carl, and they fight cyborg Jean-Claude Van Damme together, father and son fighting a marriage of man and machine. However, the evil Jean-Claude Van Damme sets off a self-destruct system and heads to the time machine. Max grabs the cyborg and pushes his son Carl into the time machine and activates it. Carl cries out to his father, but realizes his father has saved him. Walker holds onto the evil Jean-Claude Van Damme and watches as the time machine leaves. He has saved his son and the world. The self-destruct explodes, killing both Walker and the evil cyborg Jean-Claude Van Damme.
1: Whoa. The end. That got kind of dark at the end there. Mm.
0: I like it. But he he saved
1: everything. Now, would Carl in the movie version be played by jean-claude van damme with cgi making him look younger <laughs> a la tron
0: legacy that's that's probably the way it would be it's, it would just turn out it would end up being like a oh, that sci-fi story where it turns out that everybody in the world is the same person and they're all jean-claude van damme
1: right that's what i'm thinking like i like the fact that like it's sort of like as many jean-claude van dammes as we can get
0: yeah well you've got the whole universal soldiers and every single one of them is a jean-claude van damme clone so right that's what i'm thinking see just imagine it, a whole, you know, you're watching a sc- cinema screen of there's like thousands of Jean-Claude Van Damme just going around laying waste to everything. Right. And the only person who can stop them is, is Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude Van, Damme. Van Damme. But not cyborg Jean-Claude Van Damme. Right. We're talking about... Uh, human. It's got to be yeah, a human Jean-Claude Human time cop, slightly mulleted Van Damme. Right, I like it. It's yeah. a whole lot of Van Damme, basically. I, I see that. <laughs> okay, so what, uh, what about your long term?
1: Okay, well, Max travels back to two thousand and four and through a convoluted series of events that I'm not gonna describe here because <laughs> I couldn't really figure it out. But
0: I, I like up... the way we both had that kind of thing going on. <laughs> yeah,
1: just it gets so complicated with time stuff travel. Stuff happens, time travel. Right, exactly. It's like eh, a lot of stuff goes on and that's how this all ends up. But basically he ends up facing himself from nineteen ninety four <gasps> and his previous future self who had traveled back to two thousand and four. Wow. Do you following that?
0: It's like Van Damme
1: the Right, exactly. Uh, as well as Senator McComb and young Senator McComb. He tries to explain to all of them what happened, and while the other two Maxes believe him, Senator McCombs aren't buying it. Desperate to fix the future, Max and the other Maxes have no choice. They band together and grab the two senators and each other, and the five of them begin to dissolve into the time stream, which causes a humongous explosion as there's too much energy being expended at once. Time ripples emanate outwards, forward and backward through time. Everything goes black. Oh, no. Back in 2004, Max wakes up in the morning. He smiles at his wife, then gets up to get his son ready for school. He gets dressed for work, thinking about the graphic design project he's on deadline for. He heads outside, hops on his dinosaur, turns on the anti-gravity engine, and flies off to work with a big smile on his face. Life is good for Max Walker. Whoa.
0: (laughs) Anti-gravity equipped dinosaurs yeah well i figured with all these
1: time ripples you know it changed the whole timeline and it changed it in such a way that everything has has you know just been completely is completely different so why not have flying dinosaurs
0: that's fantastic
1: i like it thanks Mm -hmm. i thought i'd have some fun with it very good likewise so yeah i
0: like i do like a bit of time travel yeah and the fact the fact you can just skip skip around a bit because it's all time travel it all makes sense within the framework of the film
1: Right, right. I like that I can throw logic out the window and yeah. I can just say, "Ah, eh, it's time travel stuff. I don't need to explain
0: it. I, I was, I think it was my favorite bits of time travel with Bill and Ted where they're always going, okay, when this is all over, yeah. we'll go back right. in time and we'll Gotta steal the Yeah, Got to remember the garbage can. Yeah, yep. remember the garbage can. Yeah, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, that's good stuff all right well phil i think it's time for you to play a trivia cop so why don't you tell us what you got
0: uh the, the film was based on a dark horse comic of the same name which i never actually got to read thinking about it yeah it's
1: weird because i, mean, I think i did read it way back in the day but it didn't get much of a print run then they yeah. reprinted it when it came i think it was only like a two issue mini series or something like that but it's it's not easy to find in print so i think a lot of people haven't read it cool yeah i'll have to Track that down at some point.
0: Okay, and also we've got uh, Agent Max Walker always runs or is in fast motion, such as falling when he enters or exits time. Whereas Senator McComb, he walks when entering or exiting time. He goes, you know, leisurely. And this right. signifies that one has plenty of time while the other one doesn't, which hmm. is a quite a nice little touch. Yeah, for it, sure. It was the f- second Van Damme movie where he's the solo hero to cross the $100 million mark worldwide, so it was a, it was quite successful for yeah. one of his films. His futuristic-looking wristwatch is actually just a basic Casio model DW-400. Hmm. And what was the last one? In the fight scenes in the last act of the film, Jean-Claude Van Damme's stunt double was used to create the illusion of the younger Max Walker, and this was also done for Ron Silver's character of Senator McCroom. So there's the two actors and their two stunt doubles, so they're actually on screen at the same time. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's uh, that's, that's much easier
1: it. than actually getting going back in time and getting the younger actor to play in a movie because that that probably just gets complicated and expensive yeah. I would think. Yeah, and you have
0: got to get a lot of energy for the uh, the time travel kind of right. thing. Right. Right exactly. But that was Time Cop.
1: Very cool. All right. Well, let's move on then to Young Frankenstein. Phil, why don't you take us through the events of this classic comedy?
0: Okay. Well, this is uh, Mel Brooks Directed it and he wrote it with uh, Gene Wilder, who also stars. But it features Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, who tries to play down his relationship with the mad scientist Frankenstein. However, he ends up inheriting the family estate in Transylvania, so he heads on over to check it out. There he is met by Igor, played by Marty Feldman, who didn't have any makeup on, <laughs> <laughs> Inga, played by Terry Garr, and the housekeeper, Frau Blücher, played by Klaus Sleachman. He discovers his grandfather's lab and journals. Because he has, he's a genius and inquisitive mind, he decides to recreate the experiment and reanimate the dead. Igor is sent to get the mind of an intellectual, but ends up dropping it. So gets an abnormal one instead, but doesn't tell the doctor. Frederick brings the creature, played by Peter Boyle, to life. But it turns out it's frightened by fire and it attacks Frederick. And they end up having to sedate it. Frau Blöcke, though, releases the creature and it goes for a bit of a wonder. But uh, Frederick recaptures it and talks to it. He acknowledges his heritage, and accepts the name Frankenstein. Frederick introduces the creature to a theater full of guests and scientists, you know, and intellectual kind of people. And uh, he talks to it, and they end up doing a bit of a song and a dance. But it ends up running wild, and the police capture it. In a, in all the things that, in the aftermath, Frederick ends up sleeping with Inga. The creature escapes and kidnaps Frederick's fiance Elizabeth, played by Madeleine Kahn. But she ends up falling in love with the monster, in part due to his Schwanzstücker.
1: I don't know what that is, Phil. No, me neither, but they say it a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Uh, Frederick ends up uh, getting the creature back and transfers some of his intellect into it to stabilize its madness and and make it calmer. The creature ends up calming the mob down with an impassioned speech, which uh, was very similar to the one I think I did at the start. So I think i made a bit of plagiarism there by Gene Wilder. A little bit. The The time travel's involved on that one. Uh, Elizabeth ends up marrying the creature, and Inga discovers that Frederick now has a Schwan, Schwanstucker as well. And that's Young Frankenstein.
1: Very nicely done. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it's a classic comedy. Um, I think a lot of people are pretty big fans of Young yeah. Frankenstein, wouldn't it, you say?
0: Oh, yeah, it, totally. It's a very, very funny film. And it's a, it's a timeless comedy as well. It's, just, it's a, just, I think, probably gets better every time I see it, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's definitely Mel Brooks at, at his finest. I, I mean he obviously has made some, you know, a good number of great films, but he has also had some kind of hits and misses, especially later yeah. in his career. But I think Young Frankenstein is sort of the the apex of of Mel Brooks. It's uh, it's a lot of fun though.
0: Yeah, yeah. The one bit of trivia I was going to see to but this I was reading they did uh, the original cut was about three hours long. Oh boy! And they were watching it and they just realized there was loads and loads of, you know, stuff which sort of worked that didn't work or was pretty good but then there was other jokes and they just went through and they cut out every single joke which didn't work or fall sl- slightly flat and they just they just were like uh, merciless and just chopped it right out and i think that shows they just it's because pretty much every every moment of the film is just brilliant just you know the Absolutely. jokes and everything the acting is just they get it all all spot on
1: judd apatow could take a lesson from that
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you just sometimes you need to cut it right down and just get rid of. You might you might find a joke which you really really like, but if other people aren't finding it, you know, if it's not landing, you know, you just got to get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I,
1: you know, I think very few movies need to be fully two hours you know I usually think for, for 90% of the films out there I think an hour and a half to an hour and 40 minutes is the sweet spot but is especially and it's yeah. part of why I don't really like Judd Apatow films because all of his movies are over two hours and I just I, I can't think of a single comedy that hits the two hour mark that I actually like because it's just it just doesn't work it's hard to sustain yeah. for that long a period of time and like a good comedy should be like 90 minutes in and out you know leave him wanting more and exactly. uh, you know Mel exactly. Brooks clearly learned that lesson very you know very well because i think if young frankenstein was three hours long we probably wouldn't be talking about it today
0: yeah you've got it spot on but that's just my opinion no definitely <laughs> it's uh, that's very true especially with comedies especially when it's just a, it's a pure comedy right you've just got to you know you just it's got to be bang 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 and then get out of there exactly exactly okay then so what have you got for your day after All right. Well, Frederick and Inga
1: and Elizabeth and the monster, who has now taken on the name Sir Franklin Jehoshaphat Topsbottom, or Frank (laughs) for short, continue living their lives, all happily married. Frederick continues his work as a scientist exploring the wonders of human life. One day, he's approached by a young man who needs his help. The man explains that his grandfather was a scientist like Frederick's was, and he passed down a genetic lineage that has haunted him his whole life. It turns out that this young man sometimes turns into a huge, ugly version of himself, one that has little regard for others and often hurts people in order to get what he wants. The young man's name is Henry Jekyll III. And <clears throat> his alter ego is known simply as Mr. Hyde. No. <laughs> I hope that's just uh, you being, you know, dramatic and not because you and I did the exact same thing for our endings.
0: I uh, no, touched on it a little bit, but don't worry. Okay. It's, uh... All right. <laughs> I mean, I definitely
1: go. I definitely do one of my famous left turns as we come up. But
0: <laughs> no, no. no, it makes sense to have another classic uh, monster in the sure. mix. Sure.
1: All right, cool. Well, let's hear what you've got then. I'm curious to see which direction you're taking it in.
0: Okay, well, I've got Elizabeth and the Creature, who now calls himself Bob. <laughs> I like it. Uh, they stay at the castle for their honeymoon, but Frederick, Frankenstein, and Inga, they go traveling and end up in the small, quaint village of Ipping in Sussex in the United Kingdom. While dining in the local pub, they get to talking to a strange man, a man called Dr. Jack Griffin. Mm. Frederick and Griffin talk about science, and Griffin is fascinated by Frederick's experiments about reanimation, and the good Dr. Griffin invites the couple up to his room for a toast. When they get in there, they find the room is full of bottles of strange liquids, and his lab equipment bubbling away. Griffin tells Frederick to pour while he sorts out some music. And Frederick looks through the various bottles. And being Frederick Frankenstein, he, you know, he knows how things, well, he always thinks he knows best. He mixes a cocktail of various liquids. He doesn't notice that one of the bottles was sent by a Dr. Jekyll. (laughs) And that's my day after.
1: All right. Well, there you go. Great minds think alike. What can I say? Yeah, thank you very much. And what have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right, well, changing things up a little bit here. So Dr. Frankenstein is skeptical at first, but when Frank walks in during their meeting and scares young Mr. Jekyll, he transforms into Hyde right then and there. Mr. Hyde attacks Frank, and the two get into a huge fight. Dr. Frankenstein scrambles out of the way and watches the carnage. Mr. Hyde reaches down and rips off his pants, revealing a bright yellow and red bikini bottom with the words The People's Champion in bedazzled letters on it. (laughs) Frank reaches down, rips off his own pants to reveal green and blue satin trunks emblazoned with the words, The Brain Crusher. (laughs) Frank pulls a lever and a set of cables drops down around the two of them, forming a makeshift wrestling ring. The two begin to rumble, throwing suplexes, pile drivers, backbreakers, and airborne slams. Finally, Frank gets the upper hand and finishes Mr. Hyde off with a top rope elbow drop. He reverts back to Mr. Jekyll, and Dr. Frankenstein agrees to help him. (laughs) And that's my immediate
0: aftermath. You know what? i could see that happening in a well, melbourne film yeah
1: <laughs> right i kind of was yeah. inspired by the like the song and dance number i didn't want to go too serious with my ending because it's a comedy and i thought well what what would make sense You know, I didn't want to do another musical number because, first of all, who wants to hear me sing? But um, but then I was like, I could just see these two monsters getting into, like, this huge, like, wrestling match wearing, like, you know, these sort of garish wrestling outfits and stuff like that. So I thought I may as well have some fun with it.
0: No, I like it. I like it. Thank you. All right. How about your immediate aftermath, then? Okay. Frederick and Inga wake up the next morning. They're lying naked in the middle of a field. The village of Ipping is destroyed. The place is deserted. (laughs) They have no recollection of what happened, but they know it was bad. Well, that was fun, says a disembodied voice. It's Griffin. He explains that his experiment was a huge success thanks to Frederick's mixing skills. He had been trying to develop a way of making somebody superhuman, and with the help of various scientists, he has done it. Frederick starts laughing, but the laughter gets more maniacal as he keeps looking around for Griffin. He- he's invisible, whispers Inga, and we turn into wolf-like monsters and destroyed the town while enjoying the schwanstucker. <laughs> of course, nods Frederick, but seeing the naked Inga, his passion becomes inflamed, they embrace and begin to change. Oh, crap, says the invisible Griffin. And that's my immediate aftermath.
1: Obviously, obviously, neither of us was going for an overly serious ending here. No, I like. no,
0: it's, uh, I think it would ruin the charm. I agree. Okay, so what happens then for your long term?
1: Well, Dr. Frankenstein creates several experimental serums to try and cure Mr. Jekyll. With each one, they think he's cured until he involuntarily transforms once again. With the first serum, he turns into a giant orange hairy monster shaped like a tooth who seems very intent on hunting down a talking gray rabbit.
0: Love it. (laughs) Thank you.
1: They try several more serums, and with each one, he is transformed into something different, a squat green monster who's mostly a big mouth and one huge eyeball, a giant gorilla that tries to climb up the building, and a fuzzy blue monster with an insatiable appetite for cookies. (laughs) Mr. Jekyll starts to despair, but Frank steps in and suggests a radical idea, transplanting Mr. Jekyll's brain into a new body. Jekyll agrees, and when a young man about Jekyll's age named Claude Cheney, is run down by a rogue (laughs) stagecoach, they steal the body and undertake the risky surgery. After several hours, the operation is complete, and over the next few days, while they wait for Mr. Jekyll to wake up, they keep a watch on him to make sure he doesn't transform. Things remain uneventful, and finally, Mr. Jekyll awakens. He seems to be cured, and he profusely thanks both Dr. Frankenstein and Frank. As Mr. Jekyll walks away excited to start his new life, the sun sets and the moon rises. <laughs> it's a full moon, and suddenly Mr. Jekyll begins to feel a little bit strange. And that's my after the ending. I like it. Werewolf. Werewolf. <laughs> So that's the uh, that's the end of that. How about your long
0: term, Phil? Bring us home. Okay. Weeks have passed by, and there's a knock on the door of Castle Frankenstein. Bob answers the door, but there's nobody there. He closes the door and hears a crunching sound, followed by somebody going "Ooh!" Ah. An hour later, Bob is talking to Doctor Griffin. The Invisible Man is now being bandaged by Igor, who gradually realizes that Griffin is sitting there naked. <laughs> While they enjoy a glass of fine brandy, Griffin explains his experiment to Bob while Elizabeth joins them. He talks about the changes that happened to Frederick and Inga. Their changes into monsters have become permanent and they've started growing. Turns out they're now taller than the Eiffel Tower and they've been rampaging around Europe. Every city they come to, they immediately start having sex with each other. (laughs) As they roll around in the hay, or the city, they end up destroying it and the army is now trying to destroy them. Griffin and Bob get to work on a solution. After some time in the lab, they develop a potion which they both drink, realize they both start to grow. The potion is a success, so they leave the castle. Soon, a giant Bob and a giant, naked, invisible dude <laughs> are striding through Europe to save Frederick and Inga. And that's the end.
1: All right. So we're we're going to leave it on a note of hope, I see. Yeah, yeah.
0: I like it. It's going to be a huge, giant Monster SmackDown. One of them's invisible. Right. It's right. <laughs> <That's
1: laughs> awesome. Oh, the visuals of, of making that film would be uh,
0: something yeah. I would like to see. It'll be stop motion, really bad oh, stop yeah. motion. Right, right. Movie. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Excellent. All right, very cool. So, uh, Phil, why don't you go ahead and share with us any uh,
0: young Frankenstein trivia that you might have uncovered? Okay, well, Gene Hackman is in it. He's the guy, he's the plain and blind guy, and he's uncredited in the role. But his last line, I was going to make espresso, was ad-libbed. Uh-huh. And the reason, it after that, it, cuts, it fades pretty much to black immediately because the crew burst into laughter and <laughs> they um, couldn't, uh, couldn't do it any other way. Ken Strickfadden, who made all the electrical lab equipment used in the Universal in the original Universal Frankenstein films, was still alive at the time of filming, and he had all the original equipment and some storage units. So Mel Brooks got in touch, rented the equipment, and he gave Strickfaden screen credit, something which he never had for the original movies, which oh, I thought a cool. really nice thing. Yeah, I that. Like uh, so. Marty Feldman initially improvised the, sh- the shifting hump on his back. He'd been doing it for a few days, and some of the... Some of the cast and crew noticed, and they, they really liked it, so they added it to the script. Right. Uh, when Gene Wilder throws the dart off camera, Mel Brooks ad-libbed the scream of a cat.
1: <laughs>
0: and Mel Brooks also initially thought that the walk-this-way gag was too corny and wanted to cut from the film, but when he saw the audience's reaction to it one night at the screening, he decided to leave it in. Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, that's that's yeah. one of the most famous gags from the movie.
0: Well, it's it's cracking bit. And there's also this, but I'm not sure if it's actually true, this one, but... Uh, In 1974, Aerosmith took a break from a long night of recording to see *Young Frankenstein*, and Steve Tyler wrote the band's hit "Walk This Way" the morning after seeing the movie, inspired by that scene. of Marty Feldman going "Walk This Way," huh? So I don't know if that's true. I'd like it to be, but I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of
1: right. That's one of those uh, lore type of Mm -hmm. ones, though. That's kind of Mm -hmm. fun to sort of of fun to believe it, but you know, with a little grain of salt.
0: But that's uh, that's
1: *Young Frankenstein*. Very nicely done. And if you haven't
0: seen it. You know what have you been doing? Go see it. It's good.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been out long enough. I think you should definitely track it down. It is a yeah. it's a very funny movie. Don't 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 wait. Rush right out and see it.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, it's a great one if you're having uh, a night with some friends with a you know a few beers and things. What have you? You know, don't drink and drive, kids. Uh, but you watch Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles together, you're gonna have a good night.
1: Without a doubt. All righty. Well, that's going to wrap up our ending. So let's move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we take a year from the past 100 years and we share our top 10 favorite films. And this week we are doing 1935. So Phil... Let's get into that time machine of yours and tell us what was happening in the world in 1935.
0: Okay, well, I've got Jean-Claude Van Damme out of the time machine, (laughs) so he can go do this now. Okay, 1935, the British Prime Minister was Ramsay MacDonald, who then was tagged by Stanley Baldwin, and the President of America was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Okay, and the UK saw the driving test being made compulsory, which is, you know, pretty handy. Yeah, probably a good idea. Amelia Earhart became the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to California. The first canned beer was sold, and that was in Richmond, Virginia, and that was followed by Alcoholics Anonymous being founded. (laughs) (laughs) So I wonder whether there was cause and effect. I don't think there's any
1: correlation there at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Parker Brothers began selling Monopoly in America, I mean, I don't know if that'll catch you on that one, but... Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, a game about real estate, that sounds mm-hmm. kind of boring.
0: I know. And game about real estate, 1935, that was invented, and it's still like one of the top board games of all time. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, really weird. Uh, Caroline Mickelson became the first woman to set foot in Antarctica. Persia was renamed Iran. T.E. Lawrence, or Lawrence of Arabia, he died in a motorcycle accident in Dorset, UK which is what you see at the start of *Launch of Arabia. 20th Century Pictures Incorporated became 20th Century Fox, and Franklin Lloyd Wright's Falling Water House was completed. We also had some births of famous people, including Floyd Patterson, Elvis Presley, Gene Vincent, Sonny Bono, uh, Dudley Moore, Julian Glover, Charles Grodin, Doug McClure, who you may know from various films, uh, David Prowse, Donald Sutherland, uh, Tenzin Gyatso, who is the 14th and current Dalai Lama, huh. Julie Andrews, Peter Boyle, Alan Dolan, and Woody Allen, and 1935 saw the film debuts of Donna Michi, Henry Fonda, Joan Fontaine, Olivia de Havilland, Danny Kaye, Vivian Lee, James Mason and Roy Rogers. Very cool. Quite an eventful year. Yeah, it was. Some uh, big names there. All right,
1: well, why don't you go ahead and kick things off then and start with your number 10.
0: Okay, my number 10 is The Mystery of Edwin Drood, directed by Stuart Walker and starring Claude Rains. Uh, It was the third film adaptation and the first sound version of Charles Dickens' unfinished novel. I don't remember much about it, but I remember I enjoyed it, and it's my number 10. There you go. It's
1: uh, a film I've heard of and I'm familiar (laughs) with, but I have not seen. Uh, As I alluded to earlier in the episode, I have only seen... Uh, Two films that I can remember from 1935. There were a handful of movies that I was, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, gosh, I think I've seen this, but I can't remember for sure, so I chose not to include them. Um, So my my top, okay, so here's how it's gonna go. My top seven and a half are films that I've seen, or I have not seen. My top two and a half are films that I have seen ooh
0: Two, half okay how does that work okay like yeah no I we'll like find
1: it. out when we get closer to the top but uh so for my first uh seven it's going to be films that i want to see just so we're clear on the difference
0: but the mystery of edwin Drood is uh, is worth a watch though because as it's it's one of dickens unfinished novels the film did finish it and claude rains is always worth a watch
1: absolutely love claude rains All right. Well, my number 10 is Brewster's Millions, Uh, and it doesn't really star anybody all that famous, but it is one of the first versions of the story that was made, well, I don't want to say made famous, but I think most people our age would remember the Richard Pryor version of it where Brewster has to spend a certain amount of money uh, to then inherit a much larger sum of money, and this is the 1935 version of it. Interestingly, the amount of money is only a quarter of a million dollars, which, of course, went on to become much larger in in the 80s. Um, but I always enjoyed Brewster's Millions, and I thought it would be interesting to see what a kind of classic Hollywood version of that story would be like. So that's my number 10.
0: Oh, that's excellent, uh excellent pick. And as you say, it's been made a few times. Right. But uh, I don't think I've seen that, that version of it. Likewise. But, uh, but my number nine is uh, Werewolf of London, directed by Stuart Walker, starring Henry Hull as the werewolf. Uh, and I quite like this because, well, I always like a good werewolf story. But the fact this one is the makeup is very, very simple compared to what's gone you know like Lon cheney jr and the wolfman he finds out that he's got he's, he's actually got the disease when he's like this thing a moon lamp which is to help this uh, this rare plant grow and he puts his hand underneath it and it uh, you know it starts going all hairy like and he realizes something's not quite right, right. and then the full moon comes he goes out starts killing people but i do like a good werewolf story and this one it's a it's a Probably I liked it uh, because it's a little bit different as well as this whole thing with the, the plant thing going on. And it's the fact he, he does realize what he is. And, you know, earlier on, often they don't know until the full transformation hits. But, uh, yep, that's Werewolf of London. Very cool. All right, well, my number nine is Dante's Inferno, starring Spencer
1: Tracy and actually featuring Rita Hayworth in her very first film, uh, a very small part for her. It is sort of a crime drama, but apparently it is mostly notable for a 10-minute hallucinatory sequence wherein Spencer Tracy imagines himself actually in hell. Uh, And apparently it is quite trippy and very out there. It was directed by well, the director created it, but he was apparently an impressionist painter. So it was it was the, the version, it was like 10 minute version of Hell based on the actual Dante's Inferno uh, story. So I think that sounds pretty fascinating and I'm very curious to see what that looks like. Plus it has Spencer Tracy, who I always liked. Um, so it sounds like a very, very fascinating film to check out. So I will be tracking that one
0: down. No, I think it's worth watching. I mean, for that one, it sounds pretty cool. I do like Spencer Tracy as well. It sounds a bit trippy. Right, right. Okay, so my number... My number eight is She, which, yeah, it's the adaptation, another adaptation of a H. Ryder Haggard story. It's made a few times. It was produced by Marion C. Cooper, who did uh, King Kong, you know, a little film, which, you know, did quite well. <laughs> yep. So it stars Randolph Scott going off to find the Fountain of Youth and coming across She Who Must Be Obeyed, who was played by Helen Gehagen in this one. Uh, I've always liked the story of that. It's all, you know, reincarnation, people living for years, it's lost, a mystical lost city where you can only get to at certain times. And also the... Uh, the title character in this one, She Who Must Be Obeyed, uh, she inspired Disney's Evil Queen and Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. Huh, interesting. And you see photo. If you see in the film or you see photos of you. you'll understand
1: where they got it sure. the from. I'll have to look that up. I'm not familiar with that film. All right, well, my number eight is a classic, Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Clark Gable and Charles Lawton, a film I'm sure will be appearing on your list soon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just one of those ones that, like I said, I I, I could swear I've seen it, but... You know, I, I did some reading on it, look at some pictures. I can't really remember having watched it, but I do love Clark Gable. I like Charles Lawton. It's a classic story. Um, and so if I have not seen it, uh, I definitely want to track it down.
0: Yeah, I reckon, yeah, when you do get around to seeing it again, you probably realize you have seen it, but it's, yeah. Right, yeah. It's right. It's one of those films. Exactly. So that's my number eight. Okay, well, my number seven is Top Hat. screwball musical comedy. It's yeah, it's Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You know, dancing, singing, being all lovely and graceful and, you know, making you wish you could dance. Uh, it's it's a classic musical. It's got some classic dance scenes. If you haven't seen the film, you've probably seen some of the scenes from it. But it's uh, I'm not always into musicals or the dance things, but I always like a bit of Fettis and Ginger Rogers. Sure. How can you go wrong with that? Mm. Very good. Well, uh, I have not seen that one, but
1: I am at least familiar with it. So that's something. All right. Well, my number seven is the Raven, uh, which is not really based on Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, but it deals with the the Raven. the The poem sort of plays a part in the film, but it's not an adaptation of that. Home, if that makes sense but yeah, yeah, yeah you know the main point is that it stars boris karloff and bella lugosi who are of course two of the great horror actors of all time and i think the idea of them on screen together in a film that was very very dark apparently and it was so disturbing that apparently it caused horror films to be banned in britain for a short time afterward um, i just think that's really interesting uh and so i want to check it out
0: yeah it's probably we had various phases over here where they just end up banning you know horror movies because you know some Somebody, you know, some adult person just couldn't take it, and so they banned right. it. It's all, it's, you know, spawning for all the kids who like all the horror films, right? Right, yeah, yeah. The Raven, I'm sure I'd seen that, but I couldn't remember it. And I wasn't sure whether when I was reading it, whether I was getting it confused with another film, yeah. Because I think it's yeah. a couple, two or three, which had similar kind of things going on, exactly. But uh, yeah, oh, that's a good pick, though. Uh, my number six is one you've mentioned, Mutiny on the Bounty, right?
1: There
0: you go. Uh, it's another cracking story, uh, and it's it's got Charles Lawton and Clark Gable, so you can't go wrong there. It's amazing acting. It's, I always find Charles Lawton fascinating to watch because he's such a—I was going to say odd-looking odd person, but he wasn't. He was just like a normal-looking person, right? And he, but he's just—he's so magnetic, and you just can't take your eyes off him, even when he's playing, uh, you know, horrible people like Captain Bly. And then you've got Clark Gable, who's like Mister Charisma. Yep. Who again? He was a movie star, but when you actually look at him closely, he was kind of funny-looking. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, they just when on screen together, it's uh, it's electric. It's a brilliant film.
1: Sure. All right. Well, my number six is a movie called Black Fury, which uh, stars Paul Muni and was directed by Michael Curtiz, the director of Casablanca. So, of course, that piqued <laughs> my interest. But it's an interesting sounding film. It's kind of a social justice movie about a minor, not a minor, like under 18, but a guy who works in the mines. And um, he sort of gets um, beat up by some security people when he tries to right a wrong. And then he starts taking out revenge on the company. And he, he a whole bunch of stuff gets kind of crazy happening there. It sounds like a a really interesting story. And also what's interesting is Paul Muni was not nominated for an Academy Award for his performance, but he actually technically came in second at the oscars based solely on write-in votes which you could do back then you could write in votes you didn't have to necessarily pick from the uh you know the five actors so i thought that was pretty impressive that someone who didn't even get officially nominated got that many write-in votes it must have been a heck of a performance yeah
0: i mean i've not i don't think i came across that one when i was reading up on it that sounds like a cracking film
1: yeah i do like paul muni he was in the original scarface which is a movie that i really really love yeah Uh, and so um i'm very curious to see this one because it sounds like it just has a lot of cool stuff going on, you know, sort of a dark socially relevant story and this great performance. And so I'm, I'm very curious to check
0: it out. Brilliant. Yeah. It also sounds like the beginning of a superhero story. Yeah, it does. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. Oh no, I'll to, I'll check that one out myself. Okay. My next one is, uh, the Lives of a Bengal Lancer. It's a big, epic adventure, you know, swashbuckling starring Gary Cooper, Franchot Richard Cromwell, and Guy Standing.
1: I'm sorry, I have to just say, I love the idea that it just sounds like there's, like, you just listed, like, an extra. It's got all these people and, and a guy standing. You know, it's it's, guy Standing. just got that guy it's, it's standing. just some right? guy
0: standing, and he's, like, every scene, he's just standing there, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> but it follows the story of a group of British cavalrymen and uh, the officers trying to defend their stronghold and headquarters at Bengal against the rebellious natives during the days of the British Raj. so... It's probably not the most PC film nowadays, but, you know, it's uh, it's one of those swashbuckling adventure kind of things where fighting, you know, kind of Zulu kind of vibe to it as well. Sure. But uh, I remember it, I've not seen it for a long time, but I remember I always like Gary Cooper uh, and it's got some, you know, it's all the British stiff upper lip. Right. Facing, you know, incredible odds and doing all that. But uh,
1: yeah, it's a good film. Very cool. Well, my number five is a movie that has appeared on your list, and it is Werewolf of London. Uh, And it mostly caught my interest because it's basically considered the first mainstream Hollywood werewolf movie. And so, you know, I always like the genre films. I've always liked werewolf movies, even though they're hard to get right. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what a werewolf movie from, you know, 1935, when it had never really been done before, uh, you know, kind of see what it was like. And, And from what you said about it, it sounds like it's, you know, interesting, if maybe a little flawed. But I certainly do want to check it out.
0: Yeah, oh, it's, uh, it's, it's worth worth checking out. I'd, I'd like to see it again, to be honest, because it's been a long, long time. Sure. Okay, my number four is Captain Blood. It was directed by Michael Curtis and stars Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Basil Rathbone and Ross Alexander. So you've got a cast like that, you don't really need to say much more, but it's all uh, about a doctor imprisonment in uh, uh, on an island. They end up escaping and become pirates in the West Indies. Uh, and it's Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone. So you know there's going to be sword fights, you know, swinging around on ropes and things like this. It's it's action-packed. It's basically the film that made Errol Flynn, Errol Flynn. And if you haven't seen it, honestly, honestly, it's worth checking out. You've got these big, you know, you've got pirates, you know, leaving from ship to ship, having big fights and things, stabbing people. Uh, and you got this guy trying to clear his name, but he gets wrapped up in all this thing. you got Basil Rathbone, who's always brilliant to watch. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a classic and rightly so.
1: And, you know, I didn't make my list because I couldn't remember if I'd seen it or not. And then I was looking at that and Mutiny on the Bounty, and I was like, okay, I've either seen both of these or I've seen one, but I'm getting them mixed up. And they I, I, I couldn't clarify my mind if I'd seen one or the other. Uh, so neither of them, uh, you know, made my official I've seen it list. But uh, but that is one I do want to see, although I didn't i didn't squeeze it into my top ten.
0: Uh, fair enough. Makes sense. They could easily, as you say, they can be, if you haven't seen them for a while, yeah, they can easily get intermingled. Between right, like right. That.
1: All right. Well, my number four is uh, Spencer Tracy's second appearance on this list. And it is a film called The Murder Man, which is also notable for uh, marking the film debut of one Mr. Jimmy Stewart, who is one of my favorite actors. Mm. And it's a, another crime drama, but what's interesting when I was reading about it, um, I won't give it away here, but apparently the film has kind of a twist ending to it, and it, it was given away for me, which is okay. I mean, it's been out long enough, but um, I was reading about it, and I read the sort of the twist ending of it, and I went, ooh, well that's kind of neat. And, I, you know, th- back then they didn't really do twist endings kind of like the way they do them now, where it's, you know, this big lead up. It just wasn't done as often, I think. I mean, obviously yeah, they yeah. had them, but, uh, so you got a lot of good ingredients there, you know, crime film, Spencer Tracy, you know, young Jimmy stewart and then you add in this twist ending that is a movie i definitely want to see
0: oh no sounds good i'd not uh it's not on my list because i hadn't seen it so no i like the sound of that okay so my number three we're in our top threes now i think so uh yep uh, my number three is the ghost the ghost goes west which is a british romantic comedy fantasy film starring robert donna it's basically you got uh some americans they decide to buy a scottish castle and they dismantle it move it over to florida but it turns out as well as moving the castle they also moved to ghost which was in it so it's uh the ghost was also played. Robert Donney played two characters: the the owner of the castle now, and he also plays the ghost. I always like these ones where there's like ghosts involved and it's a comedy. They're, I mean, it's uh, it was also the biggest grossing movie in 1936 or the following year. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's good fun. I think when I saw it as a kid as well, it's got ghosts in doing trying to be serious, but they're doing funny things as well. And it's always, you know, you're going, "Wow, it's amazing!" Even though now you're seeing, you going, "Well, it's not that amazing," but it's a good story. You know, the whole fish out of water, who's also a ghost and it's uh, yeah it's a good one if you haven't seen it it's, it's uh, worth checking out
1: all right, well, now we've arrived at my critical number three, which is where I kind of come into that two and a half, seven and a half thing I mentioned yeah, earlier.
0: Yeah, I want to see where this half comes from. Okay,
1: so, and, and this will probably be a somewhat controversial pick and is not meant to be, but it is Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl, which, of course, is famously a Nazi propaganda film. Now, I'm not down with Nazis, so I don't want anybody to think that. The reason I kind of put it in half is I've never watched the entire film, but I've seen numerous clips from it. So you know, more than a few. It's been studied in film school and yeah, in documentaries yeah. about it. And I've seen a number of those things. So I don't think I've ever watched the whole movie start to finish, um, but I've definitely seen enough of it to sort of know about it. And, and you know, what makes it interesting is the whole debate over Lenny Riefenstahl and whether she was an active participant or whether she kind of made the film under protest. Uh, obviously, I think it's also interesting she was a, a female filmmaker in a time when such a thing barely existed. Um, and also just, I think, as a historical record of... This era of history that had more impact on the world than just about any other and the rise of the Nazi party, you know, while the the Nazi party was a terrible thing, the footage that I've seen of these these rallies and these, you know, goose stepping soldiers and all this stuff is, is fascinating from a historical standpoint. It's utterly fascinating to see. This footage and, and see these just humongous amounts of people, you know, all in lockstep with this with this
0: terrible thing. It's, it makes perfect sense. If, you, if you're if a lover of film, I mean, her work is is phenomenal. Right. And it's
1: and it's important. You know, it's definitely an important part of the film history discussion. So um, so that's why it's my half film. I've seen enough parts of it to have a pretty good feel for it but again i don't know that i've ever watched it from start to finish so that's why it's yeah. right in my number three spot but i do think it's culturally and historically important
0: oh definitely because uh I've, I've only seen bits and pieces of that one but i was at the olympic museum in switzerland a few years ago where there was like they were doing talks about the various every every olympics they do an olympic film and she did the one for the uh the berlin olympics right right back in the day but uh uh, which, which is, it's phenomenal the way she filmed it. It's just incredibly well done. And it was just, but there was a guy there who'd actually met her a few times. and had dinner with her, and he said she was a, a lovely woman. Uh, she was disgusted with the whole Nazi party and everything like that. But uh, right. that's a whole other story. But he was saying when she was when they went to filming, she basically had they invented new cameras and things for lots of the various events. But they basically with cameras at every single event going on so they were filming constantly they went through miles and miles of film and she was editing it constantly as well so she was like setting things up and editing and doing all this other stuff and he said it was just it seemed like an absolute nightmare when she was describing it to him but he, he said you can see the results right it's just amazing but she's uh i mean what she's filming you know you don't might not agree with but the way she, the way it was filmed it's uh it's amazing, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was groundbreaking for the time, and I yeah. think that I think that the general kind of consensus is that she filmed it because she didn't really have a choice, uh, yeah. you know. And there's only so many ways you can say no to the Nazis before it ends very badly for you. So, <laughs> you know, um, I, you know, I, I just choose to look at it as you know the the talent involved, and I don't get involved in the
0: politics. But but that's it. No, it's an excellent pick. Uh, my number two though is The Pride of Frankenstein, which is, seems. Uh, very fitting for what, yeah what we've been doing <laughs> complete coincidence that we picked yeah. the year
1: that had young frankenstein the same you know that the, the bride of frankenstein came out
0: i know but it's uh i i'm still never sure why i prefer this one to like the first frankenstein film but i think a lot of people like that but it's directed by james whale and again stars boris Karloff as the monster and elsa lanchester who plays the monster's mate but also she plays mary shelley in the framing work which i always quite like that as well the fact you know it sort of reminds you that it is just a story Right, You've got uh, Lord Byron and Mary Shelley to start talking about the Frankenstein and the monster. And it's just, uh, what can I say, Boris Karloff as the monster just brings so much empathy. And he's got the classic Frankenstein look, which is, I mean, you think of Frankenstein, you're thinking of Boris Karloff as the monster. Right. That's where it all comes from. And then when you finally see uh, see the bride, I mean, that's so iconic as well. The lightning, you know, white hair going up the side. It's yep. just uh, yep. a classic.
1: For sure. Well, my number two pick is also The Bride of Frankenstein, so very well done. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, the whole Frankenstein story. I'll watch just about any adaptation of Frankenstein or read any adaptation of it. I just, I just love the story and I like to see it adapted into any format I can get it in. Um, but I do think The Bride of Frankenstein is sort of like the Empire Strikes Back of the 30s in that, uh, like you said, you couldn't decide which one you like better. I think many people feel that Bride of Frankenstein is actually a superior film hmm. to the original Frankenstein. I'm um, like you; I don't know which one. They both have great moments, but I, I do think that the, the just the imagery and the way that she looks—you know, having not been in the book. You know, having not been in the book and then creating this look and, and it's one of those things where even people who haven't seen the film as a lot of younger people haven't gone back and watched these classics, if you show them a picture of the Bride of Frankenstein, everybody knows who that is it 's such an iconic image you know and i and I love that I love these movies that you know it's been almost a hundred years, and people who have no idea what that movie is, we'll look at that and go, oh, it's The Bride of Frankenstein, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it cops up, you're watching cartoons. Right. Well, I was going to say watching cartoons with my daughter, but I often watch cartoons by myself. I mean. <laughs> but uh, you see, you know, you see that look, you know, you see character, which is obviously based on The Bride of Frankenstein, and it's just, uh, it pops up there in the adverts, you know, comic Yeah, books yeah, all yeah exactly. Things, yeah.
1: It's just part of pop culture now, and, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, good pick. That's my number two as well. Oh, okay. I wonder if you've got the same number one. I'm, I'm thinking there's a good, good, good chance,
0: but, you know, yeah. you've seen so many more movies than me from this year, it's hard to say for sure which way it'll go. Uh, but my number one has been made a few times, and I always like it, but it's uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and it's a 39 Steps. It's about a, a man who sort of gets involved in a whole spy thing going on. There's, there's a guy, Mr. Memory, and ends up in Scotland. He's getting hunted down, mistaken identity. It's uh, It's... All over the place. You constantly, you're with him. You're going, what's going on? And he's trying to blag things, trying to figure stuff out. There's guns going off, and it's ah, oh, it's a great story, and it's brilliant.
1: Very good pick, and I will reveal now that it is also my number one pick. Yay! So, <laughs> we are, we are in, in step on our top two this week.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. A, you know,
1: and again, everything you said about it is true. Uh, what's interesting for me, you know, I'm a big fan of Hitchcock. I think we've talked about that on the show a number of times. No big surprise to any regular listeners. But I've seen a lot of his early, early films, kind of those 1920s, some of the silent ones. Well, I shouldn't say I've yeah, seen a lot. Yeah. I've seen a few of them, but I've, I've seen a few, and some of them are, can be a tough slog. This is the first film of his that I've watched. Personally, that to me really feels like that classic Hitchcock. You know, I mean it's got this yeah. this guy yeah. caught up in the wrong circumstances, which is a very obviously classic Hitchcock trope, but it, it, it's got that spark, it's got that fervor to it, it's got that humor and just that electricity to it, that fast pace, whereas some of the earlier ones up to that point were are a little slower you know they're not yeah. quite as uh, they don't grip you quite as much and this is the first one of his earlier films that I saw that was like yes this is what I love about Hitchcock even in this this early film he's still got it going on yeah it's
0: like it's sort of uh, you could see he's pulling bits and pieces from his earlier films and then putting it all together and leaving out all the things which didn't work
1: right right this is the one where it all kind of comes together and forms what I consider a true Hitchcock film so I do yeah. love
0: it I think it's a great version
1: of it and uh, it, it's a film that I enjoy greatly uh,
0: it's a great story as well, and what I love about the story is when I'm watching it, I always go, oh, yeah, yeah, and it all makes sense as you're watching it, but then when, you know, a few days afterwards and somebody's asking you what it's about, you're going, uh, Right. <laughs> it's because... Right, He knows he did this, and you're going, ah, oh, but it does make sense when you're watching it. Yes, it does very much yeah. so, but I agree with you. It's a tough movie
1: yeah. to explain, uh, but I do like that when you do re-watch it, uh, it's like watching it all over again for the first time.
0: If you love films and you've, you've never seen this one, you've got you to go check it out. It's brilliant.
1: Agreed. It's definitely, uh, even if you're not a fan of you know old black and white movies, it is really worth
0: watching. It's a lot of fun.
1: All right, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and start to wrap things up. Phil, why don't you tell people what they can look forward to in next week's episode?
0: Okay, next week we're going to be doing the top 10 films of 2012. That should be fun. Yeah, coming up to more recent films that uh, most of us will have seen. Yep. And we'll be going after the ending of Edward Scissorhands and The Conversation. Ah, yes. Uh, I will tell people right now, if you haven't
1: seen The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola directing gene hackman one of the great conspiracy thrillers of the 70s definitely do so because we're going to spoil the crap out of it (laughs) it does kind of have i don't want to say a twist ending but it's definitely got a gut punch of an ending so like one of those films where i think it would would definitely behoove you to have seen it before you listen to our endings if you haven't seen it track it down check it out it's a really great film all right well that should be an exciting episode i'm looking forward to that in the meantime, as always, we thank you for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week after the ending. Well, let me take a quick drink of straight vodka.
0: Really. <laughs> I've got a bottle of whiskey here, as usual.
1: <laughs> That's why this show's so much fun, because
0: <laughs> we're drunk. Yeah. yeah. That's a good idea, Mike. Do you want to give us a rundown on what to it- and what happened? It's a good start, isn't it?
1: Fielding turns on Max and reveals she's working for Macomb, but what... Mac- yeah. yeah. You can do it. <laughs> Apparently I
0: can't.
1: <laughs> Hang on, I just realized I have the word change three times in the same
0: sentence. So okay. i trying to fix it on the fly. I think you might need to change one of them. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, Phil. Oh, bad. Okay. Never change, Mike.
1: <laughs> Don't you change, Phil. <laughs> Don't go changing. <laughs> Max realizes that some criminal must have triggered a catastrophic change in the past that rearranged. No, I, I didn't even bother to think of something different before I started talking. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, by the time I get to the end of that sentence, I'll come up with another word because you know, that gives me a whole twelve words to think of
0: something. <laughs> and he turned into wolf. Oh, don't know.
1: I'm not going to do an accent.
0: Okay. Uh, I, he... I think
1: we. I think we both can admit that accents. Not our forte. Yeah. I, not, if yeah. we've established anything over the past 40-some-odd
0: episodes, I yeah, think have. we It's have the, taken us this long, but I think we've learned it.
1: Right. <laughs> Things remain uneventful, and finally, after he awakes... No, wait a minute. It's, it says... This is what it says. Let me just read to you as it's written. Things remain uneventful, and finally, after awake, Mr. Jekyll awakens. <laughs> yeah.
0: So apparently, I was yeah.
1: drinking when I wrote this, as well as while we're recording it. <laughs> <laughs> Rush right out and see it. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> really, give me a lot to work with there, yeah, Phil. Sorry, uh, so was, uh, <laughs> Is that okay. the is that the two M or the three M mm. <laughs> All right. Well, that should be a, a good a good time. I'm looking forward to uh, ending of those movies or after ending them. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> I'm going to do all that drinking. <laughs> yeah,
0: drinking. We know you. You drink. You. <laughs> <laughs> Who's doing yes. the
1: drinking now, Phil? <laughs>